Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT. This episode is a throwback looking at exploring ways to strengthen cybersecurity in healthcare. The panelists, Denise Anderson, President and CEO of the Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center, Chris Ledico, Senior Director of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, Dr. Stephen Leffler, President and Chief Operating Officer with the University of Vermont Medical Health Network, and Dr. Douglas Gentile, Senior Vice President, Information Technology with the University of Vermont Medical Health Network. The moderators for this podcast are Marilyn Zygmunt-Luke with AHIP and Tina Grandy with the Healthcare Leadership Council. They are the co-chairs for Weedy's Privacy and Security Workgroup. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I'm, I'm going to have to introduce myself real quick. Chris Lodico, Senior Director, Information Security, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Illinois, which is also Healthcare Service Corporation. Um, my CISO, Ian Schneller, sends his regards. He was not able to make it. So I was voluntold recently that I would have the opportunity to speak with you all today. So I appreciate the opportunity. And just to quickly um, talk about HSC is that we are comprised of five different state plans. We are Illinois, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, and Montana. We've got 17 million members, 20,000 plus employees. um, And we are the second largest blues in the system, right? So there's like 32, 36 different blues. We're number two. Um, anyway, with that being said, we've got a lot of patient information, a lot of uh, HIPAA records and, and PHI around our environment. Um, and it's obviously our duty and responsibility to protect that at all times. Uh, we have seen um, an increased interest, um, interest, knowledge, involvement, and awareness from our board, as well as a C-suite within our industry. What's nice about that is they see the, the news, so it reinforces our messages. And it's a, it's a continuous conversation of, of information security, educating them, making sure they understand the risks, uh, because it's, it's one thing to have a conversation on information security and its impacts from an operational perspective. But that gets lost in translation. So we're, what we need to do moving forward is translate that into business speak, business risk, that the business can identify with, understand, tie it back to their business processes, and build that that partnership, that understanding, which would hopefully lead to funding and and better security practices. That sounds great. Thanks, Chris. And uh, Denise, um, I'm jealous of your background. It looks nice and warm back there. Uh, let me know uh, your thoughts overall, and then I'll go into an interesting question regarding a recent congressional testimony that you had. But your your thoughts right now, as we're closing 2022, uh, the state of healthcare and cybersecurity. Sure. So I'll also introduce myself. I'm Denise Anderson. I'm president and CEO of the Health IFAC, which we are a trust community within the healthcare space uh, for sharing um, and protecting mitigation strategies around cyber and physical attacks against healthcare. So a couple of things. One is I thought it might be interesting to share that we did a survey in November 2021, and we're doing it again this year, where we surveyed our members and other cyber and non-cyber executives across all types of healthcare and organizational sizes. And their top five concerns were ransomware deployment, phishing, spear phishing attacks, third-party partner breach, data breach, and insider threat. So I, I, I think that that's relevant and that that is their concern going forward. I don't know that that's going to change much, but that is some of the things that they're concerned about. 
I think just in general, some of the things to think about are that the threats are not going to go away. They're going to evolve. The threat attackers, as um, Stephen Doug have alluded to, are a business, and so they're going to continue to evolve in ways that they can get what they want, whatever that motivation is, depending on the threat actor group. Uh, I think we also need to be taking a enterprise risk management um, approach, so looking at the whole enterprise and all the threats, knowing your assets, knowing what can be impacted, knowing the impacts of being down for a long period of time, um, and then protecting your organization against with that strategy in mind. The weakest link, of course, you've heard today that people in this case were the weakest link, but the threat actors are going to go after that, whether it's your supply chain, anyone that you're working with in your ecosystem, and or your, your people. Uh, you heard Stephen Doug talk about operational resilience, and I think that's really important. It was really interesting for me to hear where they split the um, teams up between the IT team and the clinical side. This was something we actually, when I was in finance, uh, found during their um, attacks of 2012-2013, where it was absolutely imperative that they limit the decision makers to one or two key people and then split the teams to one that's IT uh, um, incident-focused and one that was focused around everything else. So I, I found that very interesting, and I, I do think that that's very important to have an incident response plan and then to exercise that plan and communicate that plan so that everyone's aware of it. And finally, just wearing my ISAC hat on um, is the fact that you're not alone. When something like this happens, there are communities out there that can help you, whether it's law enforcement and or ISACs and or other peers, um, that this is not something that we have to do alone. And, and the Criminals don't do it. They partner um, when they need to, so we need to make sure that we partner with everyone on our end to make sure that everyone is in the best possible situation that they can be. Sounds fantastic. Marilyn, I'd like to hand it off to you for maybe our first discussion question. Okay, thanks, Michael. Denise, you had talked uh, earlier this year, I think it was, um, about cybersecurity experts when you testified in Congress. And you really focused on the need for training and advocacy. And the committee, which, you know, you're welcome to, to share with the group, the committee cited four items as risks to overall cybersecurity within healthcare. And they talked about the lack of skilled cyber staff, the lack of cybersecurity situational awareness, lack of knowledge and training for medical staff, as well as what they call the C-suite, the CEO and the board level uh, folks. And they also talked about a lack of cybersecurity strategy from a risk management perspective. That was several months ago from what I remember. Have you seen any movement on those four fronts? And after Denise is done, we'll open it up to the rest of our panelists to see if they have any thoughts about that assessment. Absolutely. I think that we have made some progress in that area. One, the Sector Coordinating Council, so the Health Sector Coordinating Council Cyber Working Group, has been very active in helping develop a workforce, um, um, so making sure that there is some training that we can do. Um, and they've actually come out with a series of videos that ha are going to be very useful. From what The first one is about to be produced is for the clinicians so that they understand the, um, the role of cyber that cyber plays in their environment. So there is, there is some definite good work being done in that space, and I would encourage you to go to the Sector Coordinating Council's website. If you're not aware of it, um, I'm sure we could share it, um, and they, they have a lot of great, useful materials there. 
for people that aren't necessarily tied to IT, right? So these would be like your clinicians or nurses or anything, anybody else in, in the healthcare space. Uh, as far as enterprise risk management, I think more people are starting to jump on board with that and understand that we need to be focused on risk to the organization. And what, situational awareness is also huge in that, um, plays a huge role in that because you're understanding not only all the implications um, of everything, but the implications to your organization and how long you could live with that situation. So, for example, even thinking about things that doesn't necessarily have to be cyber, things like climate change. For example, in the U.K. this summer, uh, they had a huge um, heat situation where data centers were closed. So think of the impact that that can have to your IT and operational infrastructure, and that has nothing to do with, with an IT attack. So understanding all of the um, potential things that are out there that could affect your organizational operational resilience is, is very important. And I think the more we can beat that, I, there's a lot starting to come out around that to get people to think that way. Um, I think the better off everyone will be. I don't know if I touched on everything there, but those were a couple of the key ones that stood on my mind. No, I think that's helpful. Before we move to the next question, do any of our panelists have anything else to add? Yeah, first of all, I think that was a great answer, Denise. What I would say is that um, what I've realized since our attack is that um, there is heightened awareness of leaders now. So prior to the attack, there was a lot of talk about devices and we would constantly be asking IT to help make us more connections and make things easier. And I was probably even one of the people advocating with Doug, like, let's make the connection here. And he'd say, no, they're, the way that struck the software structure for that doesn't meet our security needs, that pretty much shuts it down now. No one tries to push on those. We've had to figure that out. Um, we spent a lot more time on education, but we realize education is never going to be enough. No matter how much we educate people in a busy moment, someone's likely to click and open something. And so infrastructure has to be able to minimize the damage that occurs. And so I really pay attention now when Doug's talking about the five steps they've taken so that when the next attack happens, it won't be 30 days, right? That I, I think, I just think it's inevitable. Those These people are out there, no matter how good a job we train everybody, there's 8,000 people here. Someone's going to make a mistake. It might even be the president of the hospital. Someone's going to click into something they shouldn't have um, with the best of intentions, or they're going to figure out some other way in. So how can we make sure that our system, like, so getting our backups off-site and in this, as secure a location as possible, that's a big step, right? That probably prevents you from paying ransom. How can you, and I, I'm going to use, I don't know any of these terms, but Doug, so we've segmented our system now into a lot of little pieces. So if they got into one part, it's unlikely they get everywhere again. That, to me, feels like really important work. And that's from a non-IT guy. <laughs> yeah, I think Denise said this well. This is an arms race. Um, they are very well funded and they are very aggressive. Um, and, you know, we just have to try to stay one step ahead, which um, is not always possible. And so, and just as Steve said, we've got 1,400, we've got 14,000 employees. Somebody's going to make a mistake at some point. And so limiting, you, you have to assume they're going to get through at some point. And so limiting the damage they can do if they do get through and detecting it as quickly as possible really becomes essential. And I think that's a nice segue into our, our next question, which that is that it really appears from the outside, at least looking in, that 
there are going to continue to be these kinds of what we call evergreen issues and healthcare cybersecurity. And so where do each of you see the roadblocks as getting to significant security advancements? I mean, a lot of this is tied into budgets and resources, but also understanding, training, et cetera. So maybe if we could just sort of do a round robin, where do each of you see the roadblocks to getting to significant security advancements? Now, one of our big challenges, and it's um, I, I see it in a um, question further down, is that we have hundreds of vendors um, for lab equipment, for radiology equipment, for applications that our users want. And the cyber in general, they have not taken cybersecurity nearly as seriously as they need to. We are constantly faced with choices, clinical business choices of, do we take this sort of unique application or piece of equipment um, that has high clinical value, but doesn't meet our security requirements? Um, and, you know, sometimes we just have to, we have to do it because there's no other alternative. And we try to micro segment and keep that equipment as segmented as possible, but it still opens up vulnerabilities and opens up our, broadens our vulnerability footprint. So, you know, I think national attention at that, really pressure on these vendors. A lot of them claim, well, it's the FDA, you know, I have to go through the FDA process all over again to get my, you know, application or device certified. And the government has said, no, that's not the case, but that's still often the excuse that we hear for why they're lagging. So any pressure, and you know, as an individual organization, we have limited power there. So the, I think the more we can do on a national level to really heighten um, the security awareness of, our, of all of the healthcare suppliers um, is really important. Chris, do you want to go next? Sure. And, and great answers, by the way. And, and from my perspective, um, you know, it, it's always contention. We always have to figure out how can we support the business? How can we enable the business, given their business innovation, all their imperatives, but we know that we've got uh, uh, constraints, financial constraints, resource constraints, et cetera. So how do we position ourselves to enable them to, to help them build securely, to help them deliver securely, right? So different ways we need to think outside the box. So uh, resources, right? Finding that, that perfect individual, that unicorn, it's unlikely, right? We don't have the time, it's, it might not exist. So what can we do to mitigate that, right? Let's, let's cross-train, let's take people from different areas and, and bring them in your organization so we can train them up and we can get them, evaluate their new perspective that they bring to the table, right? Finding ways to um, partner with the business, right? Make sure they understand the risks of their decisions, right? Understand how their business imperative is gonna change the way technology has been implemented, right? Um, making sure that they understand, hey, if you wanna do business with this third party, we don't like these factors, right? This is the risk. We need to make sure we're aware of it. And we've got mitigating controls in place in case something bad were to happen. Steve, do you have any thoughts on this? Dave covered it. I'm good. Thank you. Denise? So I, I do think a lot of times it's not necessarily the techn technical piece. It's more the people and process. And I think if I could point to anything, I people are probably one of the biggest constraints or roadblocks for a, very, for a variety of reasons. And I'll just pick something really simple like information sharing. There are a lot of reasons why people don't share information. 
but it's not necessarily uh, the reasons that you would think. And some of them are, for example, just the fact that they think that the group that they're sharing with might think that the information they're sharing is not that relevant, that there are bigger guys and have bigger, more important things, and we'll look at, down on them because they just shared some piece of information that was probably not as important as others. So I, I think, you know, the more we could change our mindset to really put the emphasis on security and operational resilience and making sure that we communicate and work together as, as a team because we all are connected, right? It's one big ecosystem. The other thing I, I just want to push out there because I, I don't think we think about it enough, and that is concentration risk, the um, concentration of vendors. So we all rely on the Microsofts of the world or the Epics of the world. One of the things that came out during the pandemic was there was a pharmaceutical uh, manufacturer of containers. Um, so they, con- they produce containers for pharmaceutical and therapeutic products like vials. Or pack- actually, it was cardboard packaging, to be honest with you. And they were taken down by a ransomware attack. What everyone didn't realize was that they all used the same vendor. So it had big implications for many of these pharmaceutical manufacturers as they were trying to get out COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics. So the more we can communicate with each other and be more aware of the risk to our organizations and to healthcare writ large, the better off everyone will be. Well, Chris, as a representative for the payer community myself, I'm going to direct the next question to you. And I think it's, you know, one that's important from a payer perspective. But, you know, since you represent a payer organization, are there special considerations that you have to undertake that might be different from your counterparts on the on the panel today who really focus more in terms of the provider perspective? Sure. So I guess... Um, being a payer, obviously we receive a lot of money from our members and from our groups and so forth that we we do business with. And at the same time, we wind up paying out the providers as well. So we kind of function in essence like a bank, transferring money in and out. And so we're seeing that, you know, our our business is revolving around tremendous dollar amounts that really enable services to be performed and therefore protection of, of, of that supply chain is critical of our vendors, et cetera. Um, and it could be that we are facing more of a uh, hardening of our healthcare, right? More of uh, stringent guidelines taken from the financial sector and applied to healthcare. So we, we constantly are looking at different regulations, different uh, uh, requirements out there in the industry and comparing and contrasting to our financial counterparts, strengthening where we can, identifying gaps and risks and just continuously evolving our, our security capabilities and program to, to fall in line eventually with the financial services industry. So Denise, I know you touched upon this with respect to the third party vendors and you know what we commonly call the business associates that are targets for cyber attacks, ransomware attacks, et cetera. Denise, can you address how payers and providers may be able to better coordinate so that they can all ensure that their data and systems are safe. I think particularly as we start to move more towards the TEFCA and interoperability of records, this is going to continue to be something that we all need to keep top of mind. So I think that there's a number of ways that we can do that. One is participating in the Sector Coordinating Council. There are a number of working groups there that are concentrated on various um, topics that are relevant to healthcare security. So that's definitely one 
that area that people can collaborate on. Uh, we also do the same thing within the ISAC. We're a little bit more focused on operational um, as compared to the sector coordinating council, which is, tends to be more phys uh, regulatory uh, guidance uh, perspective. But they, these working groups are very valuable, I think, just in having those conversations and not operating in silos. People open up their minds to the other to the problems that exist out there. Um, one of the things that we did in one of the things I did when I came over to healthcare was I was a little um, astounded by the fact that there was a lot of finger pointing between the medical device manufacturers and the providers. And there's a little, there's still some of that going on, but we've come a long way. And one of the things that we did at Health ISAC is we created the Medical Device Information Sharing Council, where we co we have two co-chairs. One is a provider, one is a medical device manufacturer. And that group has really had solid conversations around the issues that confront both perspectives, that of the manufacturer as well as the provider, and they're working together to solve problems. And I think that's what, you know, the, when I alluded to earlier about the will, I think it's the will for us to come together and realize we have issues within healthcare, and we need to work on them together so that the more we can collaborate and communicate with each other Again, I hate to say this, but the better off we all will be. Um, so that that would probably be my key takeaway there. And I'd like to turn back to, to Doug and to Steve just for a minute, because recently the FBI issued a warning about unpatched and outdated medical devices, and they talked about cybersecurity opportunities to hackers. We see a lot of this coming out from time to time, particularly focused on medical devices from a patient safety perspective. I know, Denise, you had mentioned this when you were at the uh, congressional testimony month, several months ago, but I wanted to start with Doug and Steve first to see if you could really talk to the concern regarding medical devices and what can and should be done to address the con security concern. And then Denise will turn it to you once Doug and Steve get a, get, get a sort of a first stab at this question. I'll start from a very clinical perspective. I mean, um, many devices that we use are critical for patient care. Um, and I would say pre-cyber attack, I used to be like, look, it's so important to have this device work. And if the software is just not right, let's try and just mitigate the risk. I don't feel like that way anymore. <laughs> now I feel like, look, it's on that device manufacturers, um, their responsibility to make sure these devices are safe. And one device that we're using could shut down the whole system potentially again, right? Once they have that portal in. And so I, I think um, in the past, I took more of a clinician's perspective, like we just have to have this. And now I'm much more, well, if the if the device manufacturer can't give it in a way that we feel that we're confident is secure, we're not using it. So but that's unfortunately not quite, <laughs> unfortunately not quite true. Um, because in many cases, there's no alternative. There's high clinical value and there's just not a viable alternative. So we still regularly have to mitigate those cybersecurity risk, um, unfortunately. Um, that's true now, is even more true in the past. So we've got devices in our environment that you know certainly don't meet our security requirements today. But even, I mean, it's not, I'd say once a month, Maybe not that much anymore. Maybe once a quarter, we still get a request for a device that doesn't fails our security review, and then we have to really have that conversation um, with the business. Are you are we willing to take the risk? We will do everything we can to mitigate the risk, but are we? It's still a risk. 
And are we willing to take that risk? Is the clinical value high enough? Um, so it's a challenge for sure. Thank you, Doug, for the clarification. I appreciate that. But I do know I've been in meetings where we haven't oh, yeah. bought something. The clinicians really wanted yeah. because um, it did not meet your security needs. And we say, no, we're not buying that. Even when they said it was best in class, whatever, we said, no, we just can't do it. I, I do understand that we have things that here that are um, historical um, that we are still using. But even those, I, I've seen you guys build walls around them to try and make it safer. Yep. Yeah, so it's a different conversation than we had previously, for sure, but it's it's still a big challenge. Denise, do you have any thoughts in terms of this question for the medical devices? So, yeah, I, it, it is a very difficult and I think very unique problem to um, healthcare with medical device security. And, I, you know, medical device manufacturers have come a long way. They're starting to talk, especially the bigger ones, you know, building security in from the ground up and, and they're, you know, they're, focused on that, the SBOM, the whole Security Bill of Materials movement. Um, and patching is hard, right, because you're in a 24 by 7 environment and taking some devices offline can be a struggle. We are doing some things uh, through the ISAC and, you know, working with FDA and CISA and others about responsible disclosure so that when a vulnerability arises, there is a way to communicate that very broadly with with the sector so that they can take the appropriate actions that they need to do within their environments. I, I don't think that it's going to go away. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm preaching to the choir. This is just a really big problem within healthcare. But I actually want to even say that it's bigger than healthcare in that when we're relying on open source software and that's no longer being supported, that's another issue. And that side of the of the IT infrastructure, the software side, is one that I don't think we've adequately addressed from a compliance or regulatory perspective because what we're finding is, is that you put a device in place and it's relying on an operating system that goes out of date within a couple of years. And that's not sustainable in many ways. And as we're, uh, you know, healthcare has been a little bit behind in connecting to technology. We're seeing the same thing with automotive. What happens in a couple of years when that operating system in your car is no longer supported? Uh, so this is something that I think we need to tackle better um, as a collective critical infrastructure uh, society. And I think it, we're going to be forced to do, deal with it at some point. Yeah, I'll second that. that. That is a big challenge for us. Um, given, you know, we have thousands of medical devices and different things that connect and um, you know, going out of support and not getting any security updates is a, is a constant challenge. Chris, I think we'll start with you in terms of the next question. And Tina, feel free to jump in here because I know you're really one of the national leaders in terms of policy in this area. But there has really been an impressive leap, from my perspective at least, in terms of the use of what we call emergence, emerging technology in healthcare, whether that be machine learning or a lot of work that's being done with respect to artificial intelligence and really changing the processes that really can revolutionize healthcare. Now, while some feel the technology is great, of course, the security has to be addressed. And in keeping up and keeping pace with some of these trends, do you feel that the industry needs to really take the technological growth with moderation? 
do you think that, you know, this is sort of the path forward and we have to just accept it and move forward? Or do you think that progress really needs to be moving either slower or faster than security can keep up? Sure. Um, I, I think the emergent technology is, is, is the future direction and the business direction. So it's going to continue to evolve and we need to be in front of it. We need to be alongside the business to help drive it because if not, they're going to be build insecure systems. It's going to cause a lot of angst and potential breaches. And if we don't, if we don't partner with the business and understand the business need, translate it into risks that they can understand and, and solutions that we can help partner and build with, um, it's going to turn into a disaster, right? We need to think like a hacker. We need to be able to anticipate what and how things can go wrong. We need to understand the business use of the new technology and make sure that we have alignment with our various key stakeholders in the organization. So legal, privacy, um, audit, et cetera, and information security, working with the business to understand all those risk angles to make sure that we all come to the table supporting the business, but being the parent and helping them so they don't get into trouble down the road. Doug, what do you think? Um, I, I basically agree with that. Um, I don't think I have anything to add to add. Steve, anything to add? That was well said, Chris. Denise? Yeah, I. it definitely is the way of the future. I don't know that we could stop it, but I agree we need to get in front of it. And I think what's happened from us from the past is that we've always been behind. And so we need to make a concentrated effort to really understand the risks that these new technologies are posing to us. I mean, look at with DNA. We just had our summit in uh, Phoenix, Arizona last week, and our keynote was a futurist uh, who is very involved in, in, in medical, um, future medical technology. And she brought up a lot of really great points, such as DNA, um, being able to temporarily change DNA, to permanently change DNA, uh, what the implications of that are. Um, she touched on AI and some of the other things there. So it is something that we need to be looking at, absolutely. And I think we need to be looking at it with a lens on that looks at risk and the potential threat to us as a society, quite honestly, not just patients. Um, and, and the ethics involved around all of it. Denise, I thought we'd start with your perspectives in terms of apps. We talked about it in the last segment of our panelists today. And, you know, the introduction of apps really have been on a big uptake in terms of the patient experience. Individuals are using them for a lot of things like tracking their sleep patterns, you know, maybe managing chronic conditions like diabetes, et cetera. And, that can be great in terms of integrating with your medical record, but it can also open the door to cyber criminals. So do you have any suggestions about what can or should be done for education of patients so that they get more accessibility to the data, but also understand some of the cyber and security risks that they may be facing? Yeah, it, that that's a challenge, and I think it's a generational challenge as well because I find that the younger generations are much more open to pushing their data out there. They don't really understand the risks to and the implications of losing your data or the control of your data. And so, and then the older population may not understand it as well. Like my dad just actually had a device implanted in him 
Um, so that was that was interesting to watch that he'll be able to control with the remote. So I um, I think it's an education, and unfortunately, I don't know. Some people will buy it, and some people won't. And those that probably it's until they get bit, unfortunately that they'll understand why it's so important to take control of the data, especially when it comes to your personal body or your family's personal bodies. So I'm not sure, to be honest with you, how to really tackle that other than through education and having people really understand the impact. And maybe it's um, something where, you know, people who have been impacted by it actually come out and speak about it and we do some kind of public campaign at some level, whether it's through government or through industry, but making people really aware of the risk to them as individuals, not just immediate risk, but long-term future risks as well. Do any of our other panelists have any thoughts to share on this question of apps and the patient experience? I'll just say, you know, there's a balance between ease of use and security and ease of use, probably uh, you're more concerned about it until you have a problem, right? You, d you don't know what the problem is until you've experienced it. And so I think um, that public education is probably important, but I think a lot of people download apps without having any idea where the information's going, what it looks like. Uh, I mean, whoever reads all that giant thing that comes with it, right? I, I mean, so um, I think that... Um, Probably, once again, I'm a big believer you have to protect people from themselves as much as possible and put in supports and guards behind the scenes for a lot of that work. You know, we've, we've actually worked on this a bit from a policy standpoint. Weedy and uh, the Confidentiality Coalition sent a letter up to the Department of, um, well, HHS as well as the Department of Commerce about instituting a certification process for security as it relates to apps. Um, and it was really interesting in doing our research and writing our letter and talking with CMS in particular because of these requirements now that CMS and ONC are putting on providers and plans to upload information you know, into apps through APIs, um, is that CMS has its own security standards for the Blue Button 2.0 program. They will not allow you know, certain apps or technologies to be used from a CMS standpoint if they don't meet certain security standards. So we've been advocating at the policy level that, you know, there be some sort of a certification process um, so that we can be sure that these apps are at least as secure as CMS requires its apps. And CMS did tell us, this is a few years ago now, but that they hadn't they hadn't had any serious security issues to date. So I don't know if that's still the case. It would be interesting to know two years later if, if that's still the case. But um, it is definitely sort of from the app world, kind of a bit of a wild west out there, definitely. Yeah, I, I, it is totally a wild west. And honestly, the ONC requirements, the information blocking requirements have made it worse because we're required to provide that connection. Um, we don't have any real, we can't say, oh, that doesn't look secure to us, or nor do we have uh, the uh, resources to, to, you know, thoroughly vet all of these. So it's, it's a problem. <laughs> and it, I, I don't think it's a problem. We as individual 
provider organizations can solve, particularly when we're mandated to connect to those third-party apps if the patient requests them. So, ONC just put out a blog this afternoon um, on privacy and apps. It looks like I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it, it came out during our um, webinar here. <laughs> As we start to come to the close of our time together, Denise, I wanted to turn to you quickly um, to talk about zero trust architecture. It's really been touted as a solution and as a resource. I know that some folks are still in the process of learning about it and what it is. And the HISAC has put out a white paper recently. I was wondering if you could briefly walk the audience through what zero trust architecture means and how it can support cybersecurity. Sure. So we do we do have a paper up on our website, and we also have some others around identity and access management. And the zero trust was tied to those to those papers. So basically, the concept of zero trust is that all individuals and devices on a network be continuously authenticated, authorized, and monitored. And that really comes down to instead of securing the perimeter, it's a matter of securing the user. And it really looks at granular control enforcement to access. And one of the challenges that's very unique to healthcare is that we have, as we've mentioned previously, tens of thousands of IoT type of enabled devices in provider and other environments that need to be secured. Um, and then there's also the issue of moving from room to room and data moving from environment to environment. So those are, are unique to healthcare and those are concepts that hopefully Zero Trust can help um, help with, and of course, it's just looking at again securing the access the user at a very granular level. So, in the last few minutes that we have together, I thought Chris, we could start with you if you could give the audience your top three takeaways that you should leave them thinking about as you know we move into the new year and look on the horizon in terms of solutions. What are you concerned about as we enter the new year and what are sort of your top three takeaways that you want to leave folks thinking about? Sure. So, so quickly, um, top three takeaways I mentioned before, don't go hunting a unicorn. You're not going to find it. Find a person that has got enthusiasm, a willingness to learn. You can always train them, right? Be open to people maybe from non-traditional security backgrounds that can bring a new perspective to the organization and your projects, et cetera. Um, Focus on covering your bases, right? Go back to the basics. Look at your, your security program, do some gap analysis, figure out, you know, based on your, your uh, attack surface and your controls, what's working, what's not, what should be improved. Prioritize it, right? Chip away at it. Make incremental improvements throughout the process. Um, and then the last one would be around risk. Let risk be your guide, right? Everything should be translated into a risk kind of mindset. It should be something that helps you prioritize your investments, helps you to communicate to the business, and hopefully drives change, right? Because people can understand that. And it shifts away from a security-minded conversation, which is applicable in, in certain areas, but not from an enterprise perspective. Um, so Doug, concern same, same question to you. Oh, I'm sorry, Chris, go ahead. That's fine. Thank you. Doug, same question to you. Top three takeaways and, you know, what are you thinking about and concerned about as we're moving to the new year? Um, so from a provider organization perspective, I think you have to assume you're going to get hit. I mean, we get attacks every day. And so making sure cybersecurity is a high priority. Um, it's 
you know, as Steve and I alluded to um, in the past, it really often got pushed aside because of other priorities. So in that making that a high priority has a lot of behind that. Second, again, assuming you're going to get hit at some point, make sure you have good business continuity plans in place. That's really an operational um, task, not an IT task per se, to make sure that, you know, if you do get hit, that you've got the, the processes in place to be able to continue operating um, successfully. And I, I think, again, the last thing I would say from a healthcare provider perspective is, um, you know, look at your cybersecurity insurance, because if you do get hit, it's really, it's a, it's a tough situation out there. So, you know, you want to review that and make sure you're covered to the extent that you can be covered. Steve? Doug and I must work together. I had almost the exact same three. So number one, I said, assume it will happen. Have a plan, but adapt depending on the circumstances you find yourselves in and invest in protection to the best that you can and keep it current. Great. Denise, how about you? Same kind of message. The threats are not going to go away. They're going to evolve. Have an enterprise risk management um, perspective with an oper operational resilience mindset to that. And you're not alone. You know, rely on your peers, your communities to share and collaborate and communicate with each other. Well, this has been very helpful from my perspective, and I want to thank all of our panelists. Tina, is there anything that you wanted to ask in the time that we have remaining? No, it's been just a fascinating conversation. And again, to Steve and Doug, thank you so much for sharing what happened to your organization and being so, you know, upfront with everybody. Those are the kinds of, you know, lessons that are so helpful for the rest of the industry to learn from. And Chris, Denise, wonderful. Yes, thanks to everybody. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the healthcare IT community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association on our website, weedy.org. Thank you for joining us and be safe.